Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 8, where we continue our study as we've been making our way through First and 2 Kings. Hear the word of God. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. While he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Then Hadad the king of Syria was sick, and when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, Take a present with you and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And so Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and he stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Haziel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, 
The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water, spread it over his face until he died. And Haziel became king in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do come to you this night thanking you for the wonderful privilege you give us to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his flock, to attend to the reading and the preaching of the word of God. It is food to our souls. We do pray this night that even these, these words that we have read would be applied to our very hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This part of uh, chapter 8 of uh, 2 Kings is really can be divided into two sections. Uh, verses 1 through 6, we have the account of the woman who is from Shunem, uh, whose son Elisha had raised from the dead. We have the account of her coming before the king to inquire concerning the land that had been taken from her. And then we have, uh, we are told that, uh, that uh, Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, was there and he was uh, telling the king about Elisha and exactly about this very miracle when this woman walks in and as a result, the king listens to her story from her own lips and then demands that someone go with her and restore all that was hers. And in that story, we have a, a, a beautiful uh, account of the Lord's provision for this woman who had been so kind to Elisha. And then in the very next section... In verses that we read following, verses 7 through 15, we have the account of Elisha's visit to the city of Damascus, which is the capital of Damascus, which is the arch enemy of Israel. The king there finds out that Elisha is in the city and he, being sick, goes to him to ask, uh, sends a messenger, sends sends. Uh, his servant, Haziel, to ask if he will get better. And in this account, we have the account of how Elisha confronts Haziel with his true motives. And he stares at him until he's embarrassed because it's as though Elisha can see to his very heart. And... Uh, we see that uh, Haziel then returns back to his master and murders the king. So on the one hand, you have an account that is a beautiful description of God's care for this woman who was instrumental in Elisha's life and one that Elisha no doubt 
uh, felt great affection for. We see the Lord's uh, rewarding her for her kindness to his prophet Elisha. Then on the other hand, we have juxtaposed to that this account of one who is a murderer who is, has desires for the throne in Syria. And one, one commentator actually makes the point that uh, the contrast between these two sections is jarring. In one, we see the goodness of God to uh, his daughter, in this pious uh, Israelite woman. On the other hand, we see God raising up by his decree this man, Haziel, who will be one to wreak uh, havoc upon Israel and bring God's judgment upon Israel. So that's the way we're going to look at these two, and I'd like for us to look at see how it is and what, for what purpose God may have put these two passages together. On the one hand, I think he wants us to learn that God takes note of the kind and generous things that you do. This woman had, uh, with her husband, added a room onto her house so that they, Elisha would have a place to stop and not only eat, but stay overnight and have privacy. And uh, this Shunammite woman was one, no doubt, that attended to the ministry of Elisha because in the course of the story of how all of those things unfold with her son getting sick and her going to Elisha at Mount Carmel. Her husband makes mention of the fact of, of the fact that it would be normal for her to attend to the word of God as it was brought to the people of God in Israel by Elisha. And we need to remember that there was a remnant of believing uh, godly people in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. I believe that this woman is used as an example or as as a type or an example to us of God's care for all of his children that especially live in difficult circumstances uh, politically and nationally. And certainly we could say of our own time that our own days are becoming increasingly evil days, that our own days are becoming increasingly prone to breakouts of violence, even in our own country. And certainly we see it around the world, and we see the judgments of God coming to pass. Well, what is it for one of God's people to exist in in that kind of an environment? Well, I think one of the things we can learn from this woman is that she is a godly woman who attended to the ministry of the prophet Elisha on a regular basis. And not only that, she cared enough to sacrifice of her own belongings to take care of the needs for Elisha. And so this woman is now re-entering, and we have the final uh, part of what the, what the writer of Second Kings wants us to learn from this woman. When we learn at the beginning of the chapter that Elisha had gone to her and said, there's going to be a famine for, that will last for seven years. Arise and depart with your household and sojourn where you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land in seven years. 
And then we read that uh, uh, she actually got up and she arose and did according to the word of the man of God. Consider what that must have meant for her. We're told in the previous account about her in, uh, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 that this woman was, uh, the word can be translated either great or wealthy. She was a woman of substance. She was a woman of some status or prestige in the town of Shunem. And uh, she now is uh, told by the prophet that she should leave and go wherever she can to be protected from uh, the famine that is to come. And so she's going into exile, so to speak, from her own home. And she's giving up what is familiar to her. She's giving up uh, all of the projects that she has going on. And who knows what will happen to her home while she's away for seven years. Seven years of her life. She goes to live among the Philistines. And that's a long time. And so at the end of that time, when the famine had come to relief, she, she goes back uh, and, and she, uh, she uh, comes to uh, the king. But uh, we're told uh, these circumstances about how this all unfolded. In verse 3, at the end of the seven years, she returns to the king. Verse 4, uh, now at the very time that she is returning, this is what is happening. We're told that uh, the king asked Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying. Now, you might be surprised to read about Gehazi because the last thing we read about Gehazi was that he had been struck with leprosy upon his uh, 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 accosting Naaman and seeking uh, riches for himself. And uh, uh, so it's, it's puzzling to us now as we come to uh, Gehazi now in the presence in the court of the king, talking with the king on familiar terms. And uh, so here's, here's the difficulty. There are some who believe that uh, it's possible that his case of leprosy was a minor one, and it didn't really prevent him from social intercourse. Uh, then, then there's uh, others who believe that he repented of his sin and that the Lord healed him of his leprosy. Um, uh, Ralph Davis takes the position that uh, the explanation to this is that the chapters that we're reading are not chronological in order and that uh, the editor of, or the writer of this book of, of Kings uh, placed these two sections together, but that the, what occurred with Naaman, and especially Gehazi's role in that, uh, occurred after this time. We won't get into that uh, very much, but uh, there, there is an argument that can be made that these chapters and sections were arranged for a particular purpose that is other than chronological. So anyway, the king is talking to Gehazi, and uh, he, the king Jehoram requests, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And if you look closely at this section, uh, verses 4 through 6, 
you'll notice that the word tell is used repeatedly. In verse uh, 4, he says to the man of God, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king. And uh, then later uh, in verse 6, and when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the repetition of the word tell tells us something. It is important to, uh, for us to notice that uh, Gehazi is acting here as one who is a faithful witness. He is, he is uh, a faithful witness to the king. And he is giving testimony concerning the great work of God in the land through Elisha, the prophet. And what a wonderful thing uh, for us to notice that he is faithfully recounting these things and uh, bearing testimony to the mighty work of God. And that is our role as Christians, to bear testimony to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Elisha foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah. The miracles that he did and the wonders that he did foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who is, of course, known for the many miracles that he did. And Elisha's miracles became the subject of conversation as around tables and around dinner tables and around uh, groups of people as they would gather. You can imagine the retelling of the stories of the great things that God did through the prophet Elisha. And the king is no different. He's also very interested in hearing these uh, stories of what God did. And if that's the case, and if people uh, recount, faithfully recount to the king what Elisha had done. How much more is it our task as believers to be faithful witnesses to what God has done in and through Jesus Christ, who is afar, uh, who is uh, being the God-man and being the Messiah and being the one whom God has ordained to be our Savior and who has given his life on the cross for our sins and whom God raised from the dead and he ascended to his throne in heaven. What wonderful deeds God has done. What the, great, the greatness of the things that God has done in bringing salvation to his people. All of us who have come into faith and have come to believe in Christ as our Savior know that personally. And we, like Gehazi, are to tell and to bear faithful witness to that great news. Well, we, said, we see also this wonderful providence of God in that God orchestrated the arrival of the woman from Shunem uh, at just this time. You can see it how uh, just as he is telling the king, as Gehazi is telling the king, she arrives and uh, uh, she is coming to ask about her land. And uh, she, in verse 6, and when the king asked the woman, she told him about the truthfulness of what Gehazi had been saying. And think about that. You know, uh, here you have not only 
Gehazi telling the king his own, uh, he was very much a part of, uh, of, of, the, of, of the unfolding account of what happened with the Shunammite woman. But to have the woman walk in herself and for her to say, yes, what he said is true, it happened to me. That was, must have been a much more powerful uh, demonstration to the king of the truth of what Gehazi was saying. And so it is that uh, God uh, confirmed this in his mind. The Lord planned that she would come at just that time. And as a result, this man, this ungodly king of Israel, who whenever he's mentioned in any of the other accounts in this book, is not mentioned and not given a favorable, he does not give a favorable impression at all. Later on, when, uh, if, the, if, if it's true that uh, uh, chronologically Naaman comes later, later on, uh, he won't know what to do uh, when Naaman comes. He won't know uh, to, what to think that Ben-Hadad has sent a Naaman to him. It probably was only to stir up trouble between the two, na two nations, he thinks. So what can we learn from all of this, this first section? First, I think we see the obedience of this godly woman to the Lord's direction to her through Elisha. Elisha told her to go, and the writer of Kings is very careful to say, so the woman arose, verse 2, and did according to the word of the man of God. Obedience to the word of God shows a true and living faith in the God of that word. And it is this true and living faith that God so uh, gives to his people and that he delights in. And we see this obedience to the word of God on her part. We also have to take notice of the fact that she had done such kindness for Elisha. And you remember the words of Jesus when Jesus said, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, because he is a disciple. Remember, she did that because he was, she recognized, a prophet of the Lord. Truly, Jesus said, he will by no means lose his reward. I do believe that here you have an account of a true woman of faith who not only uh, was a woman of faith, but acted on that in generosity and supporting the ministry of the Word of God in, uh, in, in a way that was concerned that this man of God be taken care of. God took note of that and took care of her. And that should be an encouragement to each and every one who is a believer in Jesus Christ, that the Lord God Almighty knows. He knows the sacrifices you make. He knows the things that you do for his kingdom and for his cause. He takes note of that. He took note of that uh, in the case of this woman. The writer of Hebrews says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. 
in serving the saints. In serving the saints. It is a beautiful thing when we as fellow believers engage in that kind of life within the body, in the service of the saints. It's so important. You know, uh, we talk about church membership. We talk about being a part of the body of Christ. What does it mean? Is that we are to serve one another. We're not to serve one another because we like one another, though we, I'm sure, do, but we are to serve one another because of Christ and because of what he means to each and every one of us. And we see Christ in one another's lives. We love one another because we are one in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I think this woman is a wonderful example. The Shunammite woman is a wonderful example of this. I think another lesson we can learn in this is that we see Gehazi acting as a faithful witness, uh, as I mentioned already, a faithful witness to the greatness of God and what God did through the prophet Elisha. We see as well that the king, an ungodly king of Israel, and this is something for us to consider, he took great delight in hearing the stories about Elisha, now who is this king of Israel? He's the king who not long ago wanted Elisha dead. He hated Elisha. But somehow he's entertained and wants to hear the stories of the miracles that God did through Elisha. And what it says is that there was no faith within King Jehoram. And there was no repentance. There was no turning from his sin and going to the prophet Elisha. There was always opposition to Elisha. But overcome by the good feelings that he had, he decides to do something that is truly uh, wonderful for the woman who was in his presence. But it is a lesson for us to ask ourselves, when we hear the word of God, is our hearing combined? Is the hearing of the ear combined with the faith of the heart? So that when we hear, we are convicted of our sin, repent of our sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the moment that we're sitting here, hearing those words, that we are going through this and we're responding to the word of God in a, in a way that is powerful in our very hearts. Because it's very possible to like to hear things and to be entertained. Or because it's just the thing to do. And uh, there's a lot of that all around us as well. Well, moving on then to the second part where we read about a murderer who becomes king over Assyria, over Syria. This is juxtaposed, and in some, I think it's right, that word is jarring. It's, 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 it's hard to read this section, especially after hearing of the wonderful protection and provision for this woman from Shunem. 
Elisha has gone to Damascus. That in itself is an ominous sign. The chapter begins with that. Now, Elisha um, uh, had uh, gone to Damascus. And uh, he is he is there, and the and the king hears uh, the king hears that he is there. Why would Elisha be in Damascus? Um, well, uh, and and who is king, uh, the king Ben Hadad, who is sick? Uh, this king is the king who attacked Israel repeatedly. Just recently, we have covered the section in which. He, um, not long ago anyway, he surrounded Elisha at uh, Daltham. You remember, he wanted his life uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. That that was a time in which uh, the Lord revealed to Elisha's servant the armies of of angels surrounding and protecting. But later, this Ben-Hadad would also lay siege on Samaria and drive the people to starvation. And uh, you remember just how, uh, as the people of Samaria were starving, his, king, his army was filled with supplies, and the army fled because they heard, uh, they thought they heard reinforcements uh, coming to assist Israel. It was a miracle of hearing, but they fled. And this is the king who did this, who, who sent the army to destroy uh, Samaria. But he is now on his deathbed, and he seeks help from the man of God who has just arrived in Damascus. What do you make of this? This wicked Syrian king who is an arch enemy of Israel. And uh, the, the, the fact that he appeals to the prophet and recognizes the prophet as a man of God when he heard that the man of God had come here. And uh, Philip Ryken uh, takes a position that there is evidence that Ben-Hadad, on his deathbed, was converted to the God of Israel. Not sure what to make of that. But what we can say is that Ben-Hadad is doing something very good in sending to Elisha. He recognizes who Elisha is, and he recognizes that Elisha may be able to help him. Notice the way he humbly addresses him in verse 9. Your son, Ben-Hadad. And so Haziel goes, and he goes with many gifts, and uh, he... Uh, it is uh, whether or not he was converted to faith in the God of Israel. His action puts him in a favorable light, especially in comparison with Ahaziah. You remember in Second Kings chapter 1, Ahaziah became sick. What did he do? He sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the king of Israel. The king of Israel. And Elisha says to him, is there no God in Israel? And Syria, the Syrian pagan, ungodly, wicked king, sends to Elisha the prophet. Certainly, it compares favorably. And Elisha notes also Elisha's response to Haziel in verse 10. 
in verse 10. Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Ralph Davis uh, says about this, he says, The writer intends us to see Elisha now setting apart Hazael as Yahweh's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. And this had been set in motion in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15, when Elijah had gone to Mount Horeb. And at Mount Horeb, he had said that the people had broken the covenant. And so the Lord had sent Elijah. And these are the words that the Lord spoke to Elijah. Go return on your way to to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Well, Elijah was taken to heaven, and it is Elisha who now is in the position of anointing or telling Haziel that he is to be the king of Syria. What this means, the fact that Elisha is in Damascus, the fact that Ben-Hadad now sends Haziel, that's the setup for Haziel to be in the presence of Elisha. And then Elisha then gives him this word that he knows that Ben-Hadad will certainly die. And so Israel's days of grace are coming to a close, and the instrument of God's judgment upon Israel is being told that he will be the king of Syria. And Elisha's ministry up until this point has been a ministry mostly of grace and many miracles and signs and wonders. A life in uh, Elisha's ministry was one in which he brought uh, life. He brought restoration. He brought this young, this young boy back to life, the son of the Shunammite. In this way, Elisha is a forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. And now as the days of Israel's judgment are drawing nearer and the days of grace will soon be coming to an end, Elisha realizes the havoc that will come upon the nation of Israel because of her ungodliness. We read in verse 11, And he fixed his gaze and stared at Haziel until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. This is a moment, Philip Ryken says, that is filled with great pathos. Here you have the prophet staring at Haziel, to the point where Haziel can bear it no more. And Haziel, uh, and, and, and it's as though the Holy Spirit brings all of Haziel's future deeds before the eyes of the prophet. And he sees what Haziel is going to do. And you read the description here. You will set fire on their fortresses. You will kill their young men. Verse 12. With the sword. And dash in pieces their little ones and rip open pregnant women. It sounds a little bit like some things we've read about in our news recently. It is as though hell 
is to be unleashed on Israel through Haziel. He is a man in which murder dwells, and though he comes seemingly as the servant of Ben-Hadad, Elisha knows he has murder in his heart. And he stares him down until he is embarrassed. And this is a moment when Elisha weeps. Elisha wept. And and Haziel asks, why are you weeping? And he says, because I know you will do all of these things. I know you will do all of these things. Elisha tells Haziel that he will be king. How are we to understand Elisha's weeping? I think think the Holy Spirit wants us to see that uh, Elisha had great sorrow at the thought of God's judgment upon Israel, though Israel certainly deserved it. And he wept for Israel. And in that, he foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did the same, you remember. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the name. You did not know the time of your visitation. And the prophet Ezekiel says of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live and turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Elisha weeps because the days of grace and mercy and the miracles that he, is, he has done will soon be drawing to an end and Israel will be the subject of God's horrendous judgment using Haziel as his instrument. So Haziel returned to his master. And his master asked him, well, what did the prophet say? And uh, Haziel says, you will recover. But he doesn't tell him the rest. The next day, we read, he took a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. How are we to understand Elisha's word to Haziel? God knew about Haziel. God had ordained and designated that he would be the instrument of his judgment upon the nation of Israel. And yet, the murder that was in Haziel's heart was his alone. It was not the Lord's. But the word of Elisha to him, telling him the truth of God's decree, God has shown me that you will be king. That becomes then the occasion for Haziel to fulfill something, no doubt, that he had thought about doing before. 
Haziel is responsible, but God had ordained it. Just as God had ordained that the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified by wicked men, those wicked men were known by God. Judas certainly was known. And all those deeds were foreordained, and yet they were the deeds of wicked men. A wickedness for which God holds them accountable. And this is the great mystery of God's decree and human sin and human uh, uh, action. Though God has decreed the historical persons and the events that must take place, the events take place according to the nature of these persons and they are responsible for their own actions. And so this event reminds us that Elisha had one who was even greater than he, who came. He was in the form of God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice that Jesus, throughout his earthly life, had many opportunities to seize a throne. At many points, they wanted to make him king. Jesus never did that, but he set his face to go to the cross. And by his obedience to the Father, he went to the cross. He committed his soul into the hands of his Father. And he waited for the Father to exalt him and to do that which he had promised that he would do if he would go to the cross and give his life for his people. And so the Father did exalt him. And so as the people of Israel had opportunity in Elisha's ministry to respond to the word of God, so we have opportunity in our evil days to respond to the word of God as it comes to us by Jesus through Christ. Israel was given many opportunities through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, but they refused because their hearts were hard. And so we ought not to waste opportunities to hear of the great news of what God has done in Christ and to respond to them in living faith. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And the author of Hebrews says something similar. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. The point being that the days of grace are slipping by. And they are for our own time, in our own time as well. None of us know God's purpose for the length of our life on this earth. 
And when the day of grace is announced to you, when the ministry of Christ is announced to you, and the good news of the forgiveness of sins through faith in His name, will you not even now hear that good news, repent of your sins, and believe and be converted to the one who is the God of Israel and the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is coming again and he will judge the world in righteousness. Just as God was bringing judgment upon Israel, he is going to bring judgment upon this world. May it be that every one of you, every one of us, will be found in that day in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, as we watch the events as they unfold in, even in ancient Israel, we see the ungodliness of that society and of their kings, and yet we see a remnant. We see a people who love the word of God, who love the prophet Elisha, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, and want to hear him, and want to know him, and want to be ready for his return. Lord, we do pray that you would cause that to take place, even in our very own hearts this night, that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.